0: Of God's people said amen. We are in James. We're going to start a new series here in the letter of James. The, the title of this series is James, a faith that works. So a faith that works. We're going to look at that over these next few months. How is it that we are to put our faith into practice? We can't just have a faith that sits dormant. Those two things have to go together. You if you come to know Christ, you have to have a faith that that is actually and continually to work. So I'm just going to give an overview quickly on this small letter. This letter was written to a group of Jewish Christians that were facing persecution. I began to study this letter over a year ago, just thanking and praying for us here at Powell's Chapel. In regards to this letter, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we too face persecutions as believers. Just turn on the news. Our faith is under a lot of persecution. And so James is writing to us just as much as he is writing to those faithful Jewish Christians to remind them that when temptation comes their way, to abandon their faith, to have steadfastness in their faith. Here's the promise that James is going to speak to us as a pastor I pray that this letter will pass through us, that when persecution comes our way, we are to develop spiritual stamina. It's so easy for us when we go and face persecution to give up, unless I'm the only one in the room. Like when temptation comes, when trials come, I don't want to face them. I want to run from them, and we're going to see this morning how James is going to address that right out of the gates, and so he's going to continue to speak to us as a pastor and shepherd us to remain steadfast in the faith. And then he's going to couple that throughout the rest of the letter, how we are to live out our faith. So we're to stay steadfast in our faith, faith, and then he's going to say, this is what it looks like to stay uh, secure in our faith. So that's the premise of this small letter. Now let's look who wrote this letter right out of the gates. It says, James. Remember last week in the Easter sermon, who did Jesus first appear to? James. Remember, he appears to his disciples. And it says in that passage that we looked at last week that he also appeared to James. We know that this James in this letter is Jesus' half-brother in John Chapter 7, verse 5, it says this about James. That James, early on in his life, though he's the half-brother of Jesus, did not believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not sure I'd believe in Jesus either if that was my older brother. Like, you talk about always getting compared. Anyone else have an older sibling? Anyone ever remember these words? Why can't you be like your brother? I mean, that dude was perfect. Could you imagine that kind of pressure? Like, he never did anything wrong. I was often compared to my older brother. He was not perfect, but I can't tell you how. If I had a penny for every time my parents compared me to my older brother. But think about poor little James. Like, no wonder he didn't believe in him. Like, the amount of resentment that dude must have had. I I could just see him, like, in the living room, muttering under, here we go again, Jesus being Jesus. And then he sees him walk on water, sees him turn in all these Uh, loaves of fish, I mean, all the things that Jesus did, and poor little James like, man, I don't have any of that. And so we know that James, early on in his life with Jesus, his brother, didn't believe in him. But somewhere in that journey, I believe, this is my interpretation of the text, we don't see this in the text, but I believe it was that afternoon when Jesus rose from the dead and he went and found his his little brother and appeared to him in a resurrected body. I believe that's the moment that James believed in Jesus. And in that moment, everything about James changed. And he became one of the most faithful men of our Christian faith ever. It was said this to be true about James. That James would plead to God on behalf of the Jewish people so much so that he was known as James the Just. That he would cry out to God for the people, that God would do something in their lives. One commentary says this about James. James was on his knees so much that he had knees like camels. I don't know if you've ever seen the knees of a camel. They're not soft. They are rugged. They are rough. And that is the man that James is. That is who is writing this letter to this group of people. But look what he says next about himself. Of all the things that he could have said about himself, he doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother. He doesn't say, I came from the womb that Jesus came from. He doesn't even declare himself to be James the just or say he's a man of prayer. He says this, I'm a servant. I'm a bondservant of Christ. I believe he says that starting out this letter to give credence and to give validity of all that he's about to say. He's going to tell them right out of the gates about what it looks like to be a servant. To be a bondservant of Christ. He's going to say to them, if you're going to be a servant, if you're going to be a Christ follower you will face what? Trials. Is it not one thing to hear someone say something to you that has no experience about what they're saying to you? It's like, okay. But when someone stands up and they have the experience of what they're talking about, there's validity in what they're talking about. That's what James is saying. James is saying, hey, I'm a servant of Christ, and therefore I can come with authority, not because Just Jesus has given me authority, but I've lived out what it looks like to face trials. So now he's going to say to them, and who is he saying it to? He's saying it to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed, that have been persecuted. In their persecution, they are all over the known world. And so he's writing to fellow believers that are under that persecution. And over and over He's going to say to them, have this steadfastness that will, you will live out your faith to become more like Jesus. I think that is so true and such a poignant reminder for us today. If you are going to be a Christ follower, you will face trials of many kinds. But we must remain fast. The other thing that you'll see throughout this small letter Many commentaries say this about the letter of James. It's as if James took the Sermon on the Mount and had remembered being in that crowd, though he wasn't a believer that day, hearing Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, took mental notes, and then later in his life would pen a commentary about what Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount. Almost 20 different references back to the Sermon on the Mount on this One little letter, five chapters, almost 20 different references to that moment on that hillside. If you remember that hillside moment, Jesus was giving what it meant to live in his kingdom. He starts his ministry off in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 to the people on that hillside. Hey, if you want to be part of my kingdom, this is what your life has to look like. And for the next three chapters, he gives what it is known as the manifesto of the Christian faith. So James, fast forward almost 47 years later, James is going to write this letter to the believer as a reminder of what his brother had said on that hillside. Fast forward 2,000 years to us today. James is writing directly to us as believers. If you want to have faith in Christ, there must be a working faith in all of us. One of the saddest things about America in particular is this, that we have believed this lie that simply all you have to do is pray a prayer. That's nowhere in Scripture, just to let you know. There's nowhere in Scripture says your salvation is secure and secure alone if you just pray a prayer. What The whole text says this, Yes, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and have an active living faith. Those two things have to converge together. So yes, there is a prayer that's involved, but if a prayer doesn't lead you to live a life of faith in Christ and Christ alone, I would say this, and this is what God's Word would say. This is what James is going to say in this letter. Then you have no faith at all. So you have to have a faith that works. If you have no faith that works, you have no faith at all. That's what James says. And then James is going to say this right out the gate. If you want to live in this world, you must have faith. And this is what faith looks like. You must abstain from the world. That's what he says in James chapter 1, verse 27. Let's look at that. We'll get there in a couple weeks. But this is what James says. He says, A religion that is pure, that is undefiled before God, the Father, is this. You must visit orphans, you must visit widows in their affliction, and what? You must keep oneself abstained from the world. What James is saying is you cannot be a believer and be in and of the world. If you want true religion, you must abstain from the world, And then chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 are about how we abstain from the world. But here's what James is going to say coming out the gates. He's going to give some parameters of that. He's going to say, this is what it's going to look like first. He says this. He's going to talk about this one word that I hate, I wish was not in the Bible. It's trials. But this is what he says. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of your faith, that's when you meet trials, it's going to test your faith. That do you really have what you say you have? When you test something, you're giving validity to what you say you have. So he's saying the testing of your faith is going to be the verification of your faith. He says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Circle the word trials in your Bibles, because we're going to talk about that this morning. And we're going to talk about four things that James is going to tell us we must do with trials. This is one of those places of the Bible I wish was not there. There's a lot of promises in the Bible. I'm so glad that are there. But this is one of those promises. I wish I could have a, like a holy eraser and just erase it out. Here's here's what we know to be true about trials. Is what Jesus himself said. He says this in John chapter 15, verse 20. Here's the promise. If you're going to follow him, he says this about us as believers. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant... That's what we are if we are Christ followers. We're a servant or a bondservant to the master. A servant is no greater than his master. And he says this, if they persecuted me, what will they do to you? They're going to persecute you. If you keep my word, they will also keep yours. This is what he says in John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world you will have what? Much tribulation. This is what he says through the Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. you desire to live a godly life? Let's try this again. Wow. Who wants to live a godly life? Here's the prereq to living a godly life. You will be persecuted. That is a promise from God's holy word. If you want a godly life, then you will be persecuted. I'm telling you, I wish I had a holy eraser and could just wipe that verse out of the Bible. None of us, if we're honest, want to have persecution, do we? No. But James is now going to say to us, all of us will face trials. Trials meaning this, trying, testing, and proving what is true about it. And so James says, now, what are we to do with the trials that we face? Here's what else he says about trials. Look at this key word. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. What? Not if. Not it could happen to you. Not it might happen to you. He says this word, when it happens to you. When. When. He's saying to us, the promise is all of us, if we live godly lives, we will face persecution when it's an idea not just a possibility but inevitability. It will happen to you. So when you face trials, if you're a believer here's the promise. You face a trial. Now if you want to walk out, now's the time to walk out. Because now James is going to tell us what do we do when we face trials. He's going to tell us Four things. Four things we ought to do when we face trials. The first one is this. We ought to count them or consider them. Count it or consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Counting means this. To stop and to think. To give regard to. When's the last time you and I have stopped and thought about the trial we are facing? You see, when we stop and consider something, that means we can no longer what? Run from it. I'm telling you, in my life, when I see a trial come, man, I want to take a detour as fast as possible. Am I the only one? Like, man, I see it on the horizon. Most of us can see oftentimes when trials are coming. And I'm like, man, where is 840, the bypass? Like, I man... Like, from here to Nashville, 24 is the straightest shot. It's the worst shot. So I'm like, man, get me on 840. Let me bypass all that to still get to Nashville. That's what I do. I want a spiritual bypass of the trials so I don't stop and consider them. Am I the only one? But James is saying, hey, you're going to have a trial. It's on its way. It's going to happen to you. Stop and consider it. What is he saying to stop and consider. He says to stop and consider what. Let's find the joy in the trial. What? This dude is a lunatic. Who was the last time you saw a trial stop to look for the joy in it? I don't. I'm just being honest. But James is saying if you have a trial, stop and consider the joy. What is he talking about? What does James mean? Find joy in the trial. You you see, we can often come to this text, and we can use this text to harm people. Just find joy. Just find joy. Get get past the sadness, just find joy. That's not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is there is a deeper meaning that's going to come through the trial that Joy is way more than happiness. You see, happiness is all about our circumstances. But joy has its root not in our circumstances, but in the creator of all things. And so this is what one writer says. Because I think we take this verse and we take another verse way out of context. The other verse that we take out of context with this verse is Romans 8.28. You know what Romans 8.28 says? Paul says this, We know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those are called, are, who are called according to his purpose. So what we then take this verse, find joy, God works all things, and spiritual bypass the pain of it all. If you have a trial... I'm telling you now, you will have pain in the trial, or it's not a trial. This is what one writer says about joy, about this passage. Catch this. He says, joy is about desiring deeply and having a willingness to walk through the pain to pursue the greater desire. Let me say that again. Joy is this, about this passage. What does it mean for us to consider all the joy as we face our trial? It says this, joy is about the desire, desiring deeply and having a willingness to walk through the pain. How many of us in the room want to walk through pain? Great, no one. Praise God for that. Or you were a masochist and I have some classes for you to go to. But if we want to go and want to live these godly lives, we must be willing to walk through the pain of our lives to get to the joy of our life. That's how Paul can say, and James can say this. Now those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because they're willing to walk through the pain for something greater than the pain. What's greater than the pain? A godly life. Jesus himself demonstrated us this, did he not? He was willing to walk through the pain for something greater than pain. That's what we celebrated last week. The pain was the cross. But what was greater than the pain? It was not saving us. It was glorifying his Father in heaven out of an act of obedience. So he was willing to walk through the pain. And it says this, he was willing to enjoy and have joy in the cross, despite the cross. Because, what? Of the greater good. That is true for us in our trials. So the first thing that James says this, and we must stop, consider all joy, brothers and sisters. When trials come, what kind of trials? He says various trials. It's a blanket statement. The word various, and that means a multicolored facet. Of all the rainbow, you name it, it's going to be in there. He's covering all trials, the various trials that we face. The first thing is this, we must consider or we must count the trials. Look what else he says. He says, when you count it, then this, it's also to know, to know. For you, for you are to meet the trials. You're you're to meet the trials and to know the trials. I'll come back to the word meet here in a moment. The next thing is this: we must know. What are we to know? If he's saying to know something in the trials, what is it to know? We must know the promises that come from the trials. God so submit to you this morning. In the trials, do you know? the one that's presenting you with the trials. If you believe that God is a sovereign God, then all things come from him. Everything that happens in your life is allowed by God to happen in your life. Or we just have this God that kind of sits up in heaven and kind of looks and is like, man, I don't know what they're doing down there. This is not going well. Or is it, do we believe that God is in control of all things? From the foundations of the world, God knew you were going to have cancer. God knew where your kids would be. God knew if you were going to have a miscarriage. God knew if you were going to have a divorce. And on and on and on I can go. But he's saying this to us. Yes, all those things happen. But do we know who it is that allows them to happen in our life? Do we know the greater promises that come from God in us? He says this about our suffering, about knowing, and about rejoicing in those sufferings through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Man, these crazy lunatics about rejoicing in suffering, I could have done without. But he's saying we rejoice in our suffering. How come we rejoice in our suffering... Because we know that our suffering is going to do something for us. Because it's a promise given to us by God. If we suffer and suffer well, God's going to use our suffering to do some things. He said, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We'll get to that here in a moment. And endurance produces what? Character. And character produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out to us in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So suffering leads all the way to understanding the deeper love of God. Do we know that? If that's what Paul is saying. That's what James is saying. He's saying if you really suffer well, and the end result is you'll understand God's love more deeply. Anyone ever suffered and suffered well? At the end of it, you're like, man, I'd never want cancer in my life, but I can see how cancer, God used it in my life in such a glorifying way. In the moments, like, man, please just take this from me. But when we get through it, it gives us a hope, and it shows us how much God truly loves us. Here's the thing. I don't know where you're at in your suffering. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're not there in the hope part of it. But he is saying to us, the promise is this. It's to suffer and suffer well. Have endurance through the suffering as you hold on to the promise of the hope that God's love will be poured out on to you. Hidden rewind going back to the following word. Not only are you to know it, but he says this, when you meet these trials, circle the word meet in your Bible. The word meet means this. Not only are we to know it, Not only are we to consider it, that word meet means this. Here's a promise. You're not going to like it. Meet means to embrace it. But man, come on. I don't mind considering it. I I don't even mind like coming to a fuller understanding of the promises, but to hold hands with it? What James is saying is you can't outrun it. So rather than try to outrun it, Just go embrace it. Just go hold on to it. James is saying, hold on to suffering. Man, hold on to the suffering. So I'd ask you this. Are you embracing the suffering that God has you in in this moment? So that you can know the promise and the promise is God's love that will be poured out on to you. The last thing he says we must do with suffering is this. We must not only consider it We must not only know it, we must not only embrace it, but we must be patient with it. That's what it means to be steadfast. Again, how many of us, when we face the trial, we're like, okay, you got me here, God. But then we want to hit the accelerator through it. Okay, at least there's one. But James is saying, no, 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 no. Like, rather than being a microwave of your suffering, let it be a crock pot. Sit in it. I'm like, oh, man. Sit in the suffering, bro. Come on. But that's what he's saying to us. He's saying have patience and let it produce endurance. It means this. Don't give up too soon. How many of us in the room have faced trials and faced suffering? And we sit in it for a while. But then it's like, man, i got to get out of here. I can't sit in it anymore. What James is saying, sit in it. What he's saying is this. Sit in it till the miracle happens. Sit in it till the miracle happens. The promise is there's going to be a miracle in the trial, in the suffering. Now, I don't know if that miracle is going to happen this side of eternity, but the promise in God's word is the miracle will happen on that side of eternity. We must sit in our trials, in our suffering, till the miracle happens. Because when the miracle happens, then we can give all honor and glory to God. My greatest fear for us as a church, my greatest fear for us as individuals are that we don't sit in the suffering long enough. Therefore, it doesn't produce what God has put it into our lives to produce. It becomes immature. And that's what he says is the result. When you consider it, when you know it, when you embrace it, and when you have endurance, here's the result. Those four things put together are going to produce something in you. It says this, and when all those things, and when the steadfastness has its full effect, you may be what? Perfect, complete. Lacking in nothing. What James says is this. You will come into maturity. Maturity. I wonder how many of us aren't mature in our Christian faith because we have not allowed God to take the suffering in our life to mature us to something. What what James means by that word is this. Maturity or all those, those three things or this, it has reached its full development. Think of it in this way. And if you're like me or like my kids, right now in our carport, there's about a half a million caterpillars. Anyone else seen the caterpillar coming out? What has to happen to that caterpillar to become a butterfly? It's got to go make a cocoon. It's got to go through the full maturation process to become a butterfly. And you know what happens if you or I intersect in the maturation process? And we cut the cocoon too soon. Without the struggle inside of that cocoon, without that, that caterpillar going from the full effect, its wings will never fully develop, and therefore it can never fully fly. And if it can never fully fly, it's going to fall out of cocoon and die. How is that not like us, the Christian? You see, when you came to know Christ, you were the caterpillar. And now God has you in this thing called sanctification. And in our sanctification, God's primary way of using things in our life is through suffering to produce maturity. And it is terrible. It is painful. James is not telling us your life is going to be painless. He's saying it's going to be super painful, but the pain is going to produce in you maturity. I wonder how many of us Christians are butterflies without wings because we haven't allowed the suffering in our life that God wanted to use to mature us. And James is saying, you want to become a fully mature believer, you must suffer. Because in the rest of the book, he's going to say, because if you have that kind of endurance, then you can face anything. You see, Christian, you see, church, we live in a world full of chaos. And just turn on the news. We as Christians are falling by the wayside in things. We no longer take a stand in anything that the gospel says to take a stand in. How is it that we have become a country that allows more murders with babies than any other country? Because we the Christians thought that's too painful to stand up for. How is it that we in this country have allowed gay marriages to happen because we don't want to face the persecution of what it says. God's word says this about marriage. How is it that our schools are falling apart because we had one crazy lady said, let's take prayer out of school and the rest of us, the believers like, well, that's going to be too hard to fight. So let's just sit back and on and on and on and on I can go. Because what happens when the trials To our faith came, we sat back to take it easy rather than to take a fight and a stand. And now my kids and your grandkids are facing a world because of the people behind, behind them did not take a stand because they weren't willing to suffer in the trials. And if we're not careful, church, there's more things coming down the road for us that we must take a stand on. Or we will be in a world of trouble. But let us do what James says. Let us count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Let us be a fully mature butterfly this morning. Let me pray.